Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Pushkin. Hey, Eddie here. Before we get started, I wanted you to know that you can listen to Car Show ad-free by becoming a Pushkin Plus subscriber. You'll also get access to detours, bonus episodes of Car Show where we go for extended drives, play outtakes, and more. Find Pushkin Plus on the Car Show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. What the hell were they doing with a car on the goddamn moon? <laughs> You're on the moon already! Isn't that far enough? <laughs> there is no more male idea in the history of the universe than why don't we fly up to the moon and drive around? Well, exactly, Jerry. Why shouldn't we drive around on the moon? By sending those lunar rovers into space, NASA made it clear. Getting to the moon wasn't far enough. Once up there, we had to keep going. There are three lunar rovers, three American cars up there on the moon right now. They were disgorged from the bellies of Apollo 15, 16, and 17's lunar modules, and we left them at Hadley Apennine, the Descartes Highlands, and Taurus Litrow, respectively, in the 1970s, because we were litter bugs back then. Also, because getting them down would have been almost as impossible as getting them up there in the first place. The rover's purpose was to explore the surface of the moon and collect geological samples. NASA wanted to see how the moon was formed. The rovers were like, yeah, getting to the moon is cool and all, but here, hold my beer. Lunar exploration is an idea that hasn't really left us, even though we stopped going to the moon 50 years ago. But NASA plans to go back by the year 2025 as part of a project called Artemis. 
it's also on many billionaires' to-do lists. Like ancient Rome, our biggest ideas are now funded by ultra-rich shopkeepers in stupid-looking cowboy hats. Two, one. Amazing what we uh, what we just saw for the team at uh, Blue Origin and Jeff Bezos takes the first ride. So I think it's pretty exciting. I think it opens up or funded by his arch nemesis, evil genius Space Bro Musk. You got a contract with the Defense Department to do a lunar lander which is from being, NASA, from NASA, um, which is being disputed by Jeff Bezos. Yes. How do you feel about that? I think you should put more uh, of his energy into uh, getting to orbit. You cannot sue your way to the moon. Okay. <laughs> you know how good your lawyers are. Yeah. <laughs> boys will be boys. Meanwhile, NASA did it already and left proof up there in those three lonely rovers. The lunar rovers were compact miracles of research and engineering, imagination and blind faith. They were perilous things animated by the spirit of ceaseless exploration. They were exploration vehicles squared. They were the moonshots moonshot. I'm Eddie Alterman, and this is Car Show, my podcast about how cars reflect who we are. The Lunar Rovers count as cars, definitely. They had four wheels, bi-directional steering, and lots of communications equipment. They were battery-powered, making them, in a manner of speaking, the first EV off-roaders. Moreover, as we'll see in this episode, the winning rover design made it through the approvals process because it was so familiar, so car-like. It was a concrete and reassuring connection to what was already known. And when you're dealing with the many unknowns of a moon mission, a little familiarity is comforting. But beyond all that, there is this. If cars are about exploration, freedom, and travel, then the Lunar Rovers might be the cariest cars in the history of mankind. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization. 
Washington State's city of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We love to drive our subjects here on the show, but from time to time, we'll encounter vehicles where a drive is out of the budget. So we'll do the next best thing. We'll talk with people close to the Rover Project. People like Earl Swift, who wrote Across the Airless Wilds, which is, in my humble opinion, the definitive book on the lunar rovers. Thank you so much for having me. Swift's Across the Airless Wilds chronicles the unlikely origins of the Lunar Rover Project, which was first dreamed up by Werner von Braun. Von Braun was born into aristocracy. His father was part of the Weimar Republic. As a teenager, von Braun became obsessed with rockets, and the German government took notice. They paid for him to further his studies. Von Braun, a card-carrying member of the SS, would go on to develop advanced weapons systems for the Nazis. America covertly patriated him after World War II as part of Project Paperclip. In the States, he worked on rocket development, and he would eventually become director of the Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama. There, he developed the Saturn V rocket that got us to the moon, but not before guest starring in promotional films about spaceflight for Disneyland. The training methods for future spaceflight and the special equipment needed for survival are much like those of present high-altitude flying. And the experiments we are making today are helping us to solve the more complex problems to come. Take the present day... Von Braun's in the running with movie star, codemaker, and inventor Hedy Lamarr for craziest resume of the 20th century. In the early 50s, he participated in a series of stories in Collier's magazine. The series explored the inevitability of, of America's entry into space. In the Collier series, Von Braun laid out his vision for how we would get around on the moon's surface. 
How wild is it that the idea of lunar mobility should spring from Von Braun's mind and onto the pages of a magazine? And a general interest magazine at that. Not popular science, not even popular mechanics. Collier's Weekly. That's akin to laying out a vision for nuclear fission in a special section of people. Von Braun was speculating about a visit to a place that people a lot more uh, learned about the celestial bodies. They knew way more than he did. But that didn't stop him from dreaming. Dominating Von Braun's vision were, as Swift calls them, these hulking, multi-ton, caterpillar tractor-sized moon cars. Von Braun imagined them traveling hundreds of miles across the lunar surface, carrying small squadrons of astronauts on exploratory missions. Of course, that's not how it ended up. There were several rover ideas floating around NASA at that time, and they all contributed to what ultimately wound up tucked into the bellies of those three lunar modules. In fact, NASA's manned spacecraft vision for lunar exploration stayed true to that early vision. The, the first lunar rovers were expected to be pressurized and capable of, of traveling long distances. And we're going to kind of double as shelter as well as transportation. The astronauts wouldn't live in the lunar module. They'd get out of the module, step into this big lunar rover, and they drive around and live in that thing for a couple of weeks and then fly home. Meanwhile, at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California, another crew of engineers was working on a different vision for a mission to the moon. And there you see a, a much more simplified concept of, of what a, a rover would look like. Of course, they, were, they had to be simplified. They were very small. They were, they were robotic, and they were going to land on unmanned probes and then explore the lunar surface for good places for manned landings to occur. Um, in both of those concepts, you see one group of engineers at General Motors uh, kind, of, kind of working both concepts at the same time. What we wound up with was sort of a mashup of the enclosed Von Braunian idea of what the lunar rover would look like and the pared-down Jet Propulsion Labs concept. More like a beach buggy. Interestingly, although we think of the moon as an extension of American manifest destiny, the guys leading the development of the lunar rover weren't born here. Von Braun, as we mentioned, was German. And while Von Braun was working for NASA, Two Europeans working for General Motors were also key to the rover story. They were there at the beginning, working on everything from rough rover prototypes to the final vehicles still sitting on the moon. The two engineers at General Motors who had their fingerprints all over this project from the beginning, a guy named Greg Becker from Poland, and his right-hand man, Ferenc Frank Pavlix, who was from Hungary, They came over, uh, in Becker's case, right after the war, and uh, in Pavlix's case, in the mid-1950s, after the unsuccessful Hungarian uprising, and became Americans and became the guiding spirits of, of the whole project. Becker and Pavlix were not plugging away in the frozen hinterlands of Detroit, though. These guys got the plum assignment. Go to California and dream stuff up. Santa Barbara was home to GM's defense research labs, which focused on winning military business. This tells you something important about General Motors at that time. They were so omnipotent, so vital to and enmeshed with our country's success, that they had their own experimental department 
full of these Austro-Hungarian engineers who were there to theorize about blowing things up. They weren't there to get their hands dirty and actually produce something. Another division would handle that. But when push came to shove, they did produce something. The idea that we went from imagining the basic notion of how to get to the moon in 1962 to driving around on it just nine years later? That's nuts. It takes me nine years just to clean my basement. The first thing Becker did was try to work out the soil composition on the moon. Not the terrain, but the Lorraine. You know, if you've ever gone riding in a Jeep or you've raced motocross or just ridden a mountain bike, you owe something of the experience to Greg Becker because he invented the branch of engineering that studies the relationship of vehicles to the soils over which they travel. So, you know, that takes in tread design, vehicle weight versus the type of ground you're on. Every factor that comes into play as to whether you can gain traction and go somewhere off-road goes back to Greg Becker. Thus was born the science of terra mechanics the study of wheeled or tracked vehicles across terrain. But Becker wasn't designing a vehicle for just any dirt. It's hard to get more off-road than the moon. How did Greg Becker know what was up there? Well, that's, that is, of course, no one knew what was up there. The only thing that was known about the moon's surface was what could be seen through telescopes. And given the telescopes of the day, that wasn't a lot. But they made a, a number of assumptions, number one being, you know, there wasn't believed to be any water on the moon. Therefore, you're dealing with a, a, a dry, granular soil. And, and wasn't there a fear that the surface was so soft, like a, a talc softness, uh, that anything would sort of sink into it? Well, there was, a, uh, there was a scientist named Thomas Gold, who was really, his comments on it were taken out of context. He in a 1955 or 56 paper had postulated that uh, what we saw as seas on the lunar surface were actually settled dust in places that could be thousands of feet thick. And really it was reporters of the day who then kind of took that and extrapolated from it this notion that if a spacecraft came down on the lunar surface, it might vanish out of sight. It might just think into this dry lunar quicksand, never to be seen again. But Becker and Pavlix were undeterred. They experimented with all sorts of prototypes. And it was Becker's belief that by grinding up volcanic rock and, and similar materials, he could fake it. And so he and, and, and Pavlix did just that. They used a, a number of substitutes. They used flour, white flour, and uh, wound up with a bit of a rat problem in Santa Barbara because of that. But... Pavlix and Becker came up with one design for a rover that was composed of screws, basically, that would just burrow through a really soft, light, fluffy surface. But it became clear that uh, over a couple of years of experimentation that the, the mode of travel that made the most sense when you looked at complexity and weight versus what you were likely to find on the lunar surface was the wheel. The rover's wheel its engineering and materials would be key to this whole project and would ultimately land Boeing and GM the final NASA contract. That wheel would take time to work out using the new science of Terra Mechanics. But the number of wheels? That was something Becker and Pavlix thought they knew from the start. 
The earliest GM proposals by Becker and Pavlik were six-wheeled, all-wheel drive, which they found was the perfect setup to get over practically anything. Wasn't there a, a variety of articulation types of the body? Well, it, absolutely essential to the six-wheel prototype that they developed was the fact that it had a completely flexible frame. You know, if it came to a uh, block ahead, it could climb it first with the front wheels, kind of, you know, pulling their way up as the, the back two sets pushed. And then once the front wheels got to the top of the obstacle, you'd have the, the front wheels pulling while the back wheels pushed and the middle wheels clawed their way up. And then finally, uh, you'd have two sets of wheels up front pulling while that last set of wheels went over. So why did they go to four wheels? They went to four wheels because they didn't have a choice. They were still pushing a six-wheeled rover as late as 19, the, the fall of 1967, at which point NASA's budget was slashed. And the agency basically threw up its hands and said, we're not going to be able to afford to send a, a rover to the moon. Becker and Pavlik's original rover concepts relied on two rockets to reach the surface of the moon one carrying astronauts, and another carrying the hulking six-wheeled rover. And with the budget cut, that flew out the window. No Apollo mission was going to get two rockets. But you know, at this point, they'd, been, they'd spent seven, eight years working on this nonstop, and they weren't content to let all that work go to waste. They would need to find some space in the tiny lunar module itself. And Becker and Pavlix weren't the only engineers whose work was upended by the budget cuts. As they began working frantically to downsize the original rover design, three other companies vied to deliver the winning design to Werner von Braun at NASA. The three were Chrysler, Grumman, and Bendix. Bendix came up with a minimum number of moving parts approach. Forget sophistication. Forget elegance. We just don't want anything to go wrong. So we're going to cut anything that can. Bendix put the bulk of their energy into the all-important wheels. They devised a spoked aluminum hub with titanium hoops at its crown, surrounded by a titanium band. The idea was that if the Bendix rover hit an obstacle, the titanium hoops would compress, absorbing the shock of the impact. Then, once the rover was past the obstacle, the titanium would pop back into shape. Wheel and suspension in one. Wasn't good looking. It looked like it had been fashioned in an Old West blacksmith shop, uh, but it worked pretty well. Meanwhile, over at Chrysler, the design team there was working on a rover with a much smaller footprint. The two astronauts would sit back-to-back on a much narrower platform, but there was a cost to the Chrysler's slim profile. It didn't leave much cargo space for collecting lunar rock samples, and collecting samples was the whole point of the rover. And finally... There was the team over at Grumman, working up their own idea for the rover. A crouching, spidery-looking, it, it really looked like a spacecraft on wheels. Grumman's design had wheels shaped like flower pots turned on their sides. They compressed over the Lorraine. They were sort of comically floppy. Also, the Grumman design didn't have traditional steering, just a joystick at the front. When an astronaut moved the joystick, the entire craft would contort itself and pivot. And it was fast. Its crouching attitude gave it almost a sports car feel. But in the end, Werner von Braun said no to all three. Grumman's space spider was just too weird for NASA. 
the Chrysler didn't have enough cargo capacity to collect geological samples, and Bendix's design seemed rudimentary. And then, in the spring of 1968, just four months after the budget cuts, who should walk into Von Braun's office? Our man Ferenc Pavlix, carrying a 1-6 scale model of an ingeniously redesigned GM Rover. Pavlix proposed a four-wheeled rover that can fold into thirds, like how you'd fold a letter to fit in an envelope. The reduction in the number of wheels, plus the associated origami, meant that this rover could be stowed in the lunar module. NASA wouldn't need two rockets after all. The seats folded flat, and both axles folded back over the center section. And while Pavlix had to pare down his wheel count from six to four, the wheels themselves were a feat of terra-mechanical genius. Mesh donuts, woven from stainless steel piano wire, reinforced with titanium hoops inside, and composite chevrons for traction laid over the wire. 800 threads of it woven into a, a tight mesh, each space between the, the threads was about 3 sixteenths of an inch wide. That was the outer balloon, the, the tire, if you will, of the wheel, mounted onto a spun aluminum hub. And then inside, you had a series of titanium hoops that served as a bump stop. So if you hit, a, hit something really hard and you deformed that outside mesh tire, then the titanium hoop would keep the deformity from going any deeper. Legend has it, when Von Braun saw Pavlik's redesign, he slammed his fist on the desktop and shouted, We must do this! There were many brilliant elements of Pavlik's vision, but perhaps most crucial was that his GM rover felt familiar somehow. It wasn't a Spartan medieval hauler or a futuristic spider. It was, in essence, a car. It followed the precepts of you know, an American Earth car, GM product of the late 1960s. You know, the power plant, namely two 36-volt batteries, uh, was up front. The astronaut sat side-by-side amidships, and then the trunk was in the back. It was really the first EV that General Motors produced, correct? At least, yeah, since the the very early 20th century. As originally proposed, it was going to be uh, rechargeable. You'd be able to put up a solar array and recharge the thing. And NASA killed that as an unnecessary complication. Von Braun spent the next year navigating NASA's bureaucracy, and production of Pavlik's rover began in the fall of 1969. GM partnered with Boeing for the build, and NASA gave them a due date of March 1971, a little less than a year and a half. NASA usually took three or four years to develop a new piece of hardware. This was crazily fast. And the breakneck production calendar wasn't the only complication. You know, it's, it's um, funny in the book, one of my favorite passages is the frustration that NASA is having with Boeing and General Motors, sort of in that order. NASA is working to this crazy set of standards where absolutely nothing can go wrong. And it was, you know, Everything was on the science, you know, everything was instrumented flight. But General Motors, they're making 69 Vista Cruisers. They're making Camaros. <laughs> well, in, in fairness to General Motors, uh, now, now bear in mind, this has nothing to do with General Motors in Detroit. So these are not the same people that are building the Vega, thank God. You know, the, the Santa Barbara operation, this was an idea factory. These guys were never planning to actually build any of the stuff they came up with. 
So what you have here are a bunch of theorists, fantastic engineers, great at building prototypes, but not at all schooled in actually building a production vehicle. And suddenly they're thrust into a situation where not only do they have to build the most carefully constructed vehicle in human history, but they have to do it in 17 months. All they have is kind of a vague design when they go into it. They know nothing about NASA's rigorous testing procedures, which take months and are just numbingly repetitive. You know, they were unfamiliar with a culture in which if a piece broke, you had to write reports in triplicate detailing every test that you then put that broken piece to to find out why it had broken. And so it was a, it was a clash of cultures. The bureaucratic obstacles, however, pale next to the scientific challenges. There was no way to simulate actually driving, accurately anyway, in one fixed gravity. Equipment from the previous Apollo missions had been tested in space before liftoff. The lunar module and the command module had been flown into low Earth orbit as sort of dry runs. But there was simply no way to test the rover in the environment for which it was intended. For one thing, putting Earthweight astronauts in a 1-6 or moon-mass rover would destroy the thing. They could test the wheels out in the sands of California, but not the rover itself. There was no way to predict exactly how it would behave in those conditions. Yeah, a lot of it was pure math and good engineering. Really pretty visionary stuff. We are so jaded to the conveniences of 21st century life. We're talking Stone Age stuff here when we talk about Apollo. You know, stuff that was worked out on blackboards and was slide rules. We'll hear how it all worked out after the break. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. 
That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. As much of a success story as the rover eventually became, some stuff did go wrong. On Apollo 15, the first lunar rover mission, astronaut Dave Scott climbed into the driver's seat shortly after touchdown on the moon, only to discover that the front steering wasn't working. Thankfully, it was just a brief electrical glitch, but steering issues cropped up again on Apollo 16. And then, later in that second rover mission, Things got really gnarly. John Young, the, the mission commander, as he was walking past the rover, snagged the, the right rear fender extension with a hammer that was jutting out of a, a pocket on his shin and ripped it off. Without that fender extension, the rover kicked up a, a rooster tail of dust wherever it went. And, and you did not need high speeds to achieve that rooster tail. I mean, the, these guys were going six miles an hour most of the time. They topped out at like eight. And that was an uncomfortably fast drive. But the result was that this dust got propelled onto the astronauts, onto the electronics. A cloud of fine moon dust might not sound like a big deal, but it's highly abrasive. Scientists have described it as fine as flour and rough as sandpaper. That gets into any moving part and you're screwed over 200,000 miles from home. On top of all of that, If that dust got into the rover's electrical system, it would absorb the blazing heat from the sun and fry the circuits. And so, working overnight, John Young 
put together a solution and they, they picked the fender with, uh, with maps, duct tape, and two clamps. Good old duct tape. Can you imagine how cool-headed these guys are? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, you kind of understand NASA's requirement that they all be test pilots. You, go, you fly a quarter million miles there. Then you get into a car. You get into a 1969 General Motors product. And I don't know, I don't know, Eddie, if you've owned any 1969 General Motors products, but I've owned two of them. I have two Oldsmobiles, a Vista Cruiser and a uh, Cutlass Convertible. And I loved both of those cars. But if you were to ask me, you know, would you be willing to get behind the wheel of that Cutlass Convertible a quarter million miles from home and drive out of sight of your one-way home? I'd have to think about that. Those 1969 General Motors projects took us past the known known, allowing us to make good on the promise of Apollo 11. Because why go up there if we're not going to see what the moon is all about? If it's habitable, if it's volcanic, if there's water. Apollo 11, in case you're having a hard time keeping your mission straight, is the famous Neil Armstrong Buzz Aldrin voyage. One small step for a man. One giant leap for mankind. But in some ways, the lunar rover missions were even greater leaps. Armstrong and Aldrin's mandate was relatively simple. Land on the most boring piece of real estate on the moon, the Sea of Tranquility. Totally flat, no obstacles. Walk around for a couple hours, get back in the ship, meet up with the orbiter, and fly home. Easy. But the farthest Armstrong and Aldrin got from the lunar module was 65 yards. And here's maybe the key point about the rovers. Every mission before the lunar rovers was a prelude to the real science, the real interrogation of the moon's surface. Apollos 11 through 14 were really just equipment testing. The guys in Apollo 14, you know, they're, they're walking only as far as they can walk in their spacesuits, and just simple movement in that spacesuit was taxing. As you used muscle just to shuffle forward or to bunny hop, uh, your metabolic rate is increasing, which increases your, your consumption of the air and cooling water in your backpack, which limits the amount of time you can stay outside. The radius of Apollo 14 was about half a mile. You were really limited in radius. On the next mission, Apollo 15, the crew of Dave Scott and Jim Irwin covered 17 and a quarter miles in their GM rover. It just completely remade the mission. When Dave Scott and Jim Irwin got into that rover, they covered more in their first 13 minutes in the car than all of the previous missions had covered on the lunar surface combined. Those guys climbed the side of a mountain the size of Kilimanjaro, went hundreds of feet up, up the side of it. Uh, they, they explored the edge of a canyon that was a mile wide and a thousand feet deep. With Apollo 15, for the first time, you have a mission that doesn't have, except for testing the rover on that first drive, doesn't have um, a developmental angle to it. It's pure science and exploration. They explored all right. With the GM rovers, our astronauts went farther and brought back more stuff than ever could have happened otherwise. They went a total of 56 miles on the three missions. It was a total game changer. And what they brought back in their rock bags was key to finding out how the moon's surface developed. Scott and Irwin discovered what's known as the Genesis Rock. 
Genesis Rock was a piece of a northosite, which is a, uh, a mineral that was and was thought to be part of the original lunar crust. You know, one of the things that's that's valuable about the moon from a scientific standpoint is that it's been dead since infancy. So while you know the Earth is this very dynamic place with with changes wrought by oceans and by volcanoes and by uh, you know continental drift, uh, the moon is as it as it was, you know, four and a half billion years ago, largely. The only changes that have come to it have been wrought by meteorites striking it. So it makes it really valuable if you're looking at the origins of the, the universe to go there to get a bead on on how things work. It's pristine. And the yeah, yeah, in its way, in its dead, terrible, you know, desolate way. Uh, and, you know, the anorthosite, because it was part of the... Uh, thought to be part of the original lunar crust was was something that NASA really put a priority on. It was a holy grail, and Dave Scott and Jim Irwin found it on their second drive and, uh, and, and were well-trained enough as geologists, they recognized immediately what it was that they were holding in their hands. The bright white Genesis rock was thought to be ejected from the crust after a meteorite hit the moon's surface. The Genesis rock showed that the moon's later topography was shaped by stuff hitting it, but that the moon was also, very early on, volcanic. Not bad for a day's work. Why did it stop? Apollo? Money. In a word. Money. I mean, you, you have to remember this. You know, this is all occurring while... Uh, we're mired in, in Vietnam. We are dealing with uh, just terrible societal problems at home, uh, none of which seem easy to fix, except by spending an awful lot of money. And Apollo 15 cost $445 million. $445 million bucks is a lot of money anytime, but this was 1971. That's over $3 billion in today's money. And that was just the Apollo 15 price tag. The Apollo program, for all of its achievements, had one really serious drawback, and that was that virtually all of the equipment used to reach those achievements was, was used once and thrown away. The lunar rover made a remarkable journey from the pages of Collier's Weekly in the early 50s to the surface of the moon in 1971. And then, just like that, the mission was over. We left the moon and we left our rovers behind, literally and figuratively. Who knows what might have happened if the project continued? How much further along in the development of electric vehicles would we be? And would there be all-inclusive resorts up there on the Descartes Highlands? Look up the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter Camera from Arizona State University, and you can zoom in on the landing sites. You can see their tire tracks, and you can follow their tire tracks for miles across the lunar surface. We'll soon go back up there to create more tire tracks, and hopefully discover more than we were able to the first round. NASA's Artemis program plans to get us back to the moon for the first time in 50 years. The current timetable has Americans landing on the moon in 2024. 
NASA plans to put a permanent colony on the moon and use it as a platform for travel to Mars. And once again, General Motors is busy at the drafting table. But unlike those early Apollo missions, the goal this time around isn't just about exploration. What's really interesting about this particular series of missions is that the intent is long-term habitation or colonization of the moon, if you will. That's Jeffrey Neald, who's working to design the new lunar rover for Artemis. So yes, perhaps we'll get our vacation homes up there yet. We may be a two-planet species after all. Elon Musk wants that second planet to be Mars, not the moon. But Artemis posits the moon as a launch pad for Mars exploration, too. We're going back to the moon, and this is why. The moon is a treasure trove of science. It holds opportunities for us to make discoveries about our home planet, about our sun, and about our solar system. The wealth of knowledge to be gleaned from the moon will inspire a new generation of thought and action. Without fail, every major program and mission NASA has invested in has led to technologies and capabilities that have shaped our culture. The breakthroughs of the Artemis era will define our generation. The moon also makes an interesting proving ground for streets on Earth. The new rovers are electrified, as the first ones were. But that line of electric vehicle development stopped with Apollo. Hopefully what the Artemis team finds out about batteries and motors can be applied down here. I think that having the lunar surface or the lunar environment as a proving ground is certainly a wonderful opportunity. Um, the solutions that are effective in that challenging environment will absolutely push our knowledge and our technology in the direction that we could then therefore apply back on Earth. You have a pretty unique thermal environment there. All you EV owners out there know what I'm getting at. When it's cold out, you lose driving range. Lots of it. Yeah, so there's a, a huge shift in temperature. Um, it, the lunar surface, when it's, when it's daylight, um, is 250 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. When it's the equivalent of nighttime, it's, it's 250 degrees Fahrenheit below zero. So that's a massive shift. We don't really experience anything quite like that here. And the lunar night lasts for the equivalent of 14 Earth days. So it's a very long night a very long day, very cold night, very hot day. <laughs> One of the things that we're working on is obviously um, solar charging. That's that's going to be the life source for this vehicle. There's nothing to plug into up there. And uh, we're developing what, what's called a solar array. And this will pull energy from the sun and it will store it. And our goal is to survive the lunar night. We're intending for these vehicles to be able to live on the lunar surface. So they have to absorb 14 days of heat and light and then use that to survive 14 days of cold and darkness and then repeat over and over and over and over again. So this this rover would be of unlimited use. You could go as far as you want because it's rechargeable. It's also recyclable. The idea is that these are not one-time use disposable uh, mobility vehicles. These have to have a lot of durability and longevity. Um, we've thought a lot about, you know, we're in a situation now where we're having conversations about repair, long-term repair, parts inventory. It's not a one-use case situation like Apollo. We've even talked to the team about um, 
the interchangeability of the parts. Um, the intent is to have more than one of these rovers on the surface at any given time. I mean, we're thinking about maintaining a fleet of vehicles over a long period of time. And the, the more we can share between this fleet of rovers, the better we're going to be. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, the, the Apollo programs were sort of um, use it and leave it. And then the space shuttle was a reusable service craft. And now you look at what Elon Musk is doing and those vehicles intercept the space station and they come back and they land on the pad and sustainability and reusability seem to be all of a sudden the keywords of the space program. So it's really cool to hear that we're not just using it and dumping it on the moon because yeah. there's three cars there already. Right. <laughs> I can't wait for the photo of the new rover and the old rover. <laughs> That's a great idea. You hear that, everybody? We're going back to the moon. Car Show is written and hosted by me, Eddie Alterman. It's produced by Sam Dingman, Jacob Smith, and Amy Gaines. Our editor is Jen Guerra. Original music and mastering by Ben Tolliday. Our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Our show art was designed by Sean Carney and airbrushed by Greg Lefevre. Our patron saints are Lital Malad and Justine Lang. Car Show is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin Industries, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in Coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. 
Enter the Kingdom in IMAX, now playing, and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.